want to invite our children to Children's Church. If you want to head out the back, your teacher will meet you. Just a setting for them to learn the scriptures in a more age-appropriate manner. So God bless them as they go. Let's pray. Lord, we sang to you this morning how great you art, or how great you are, rather. Um, Lord, the, the word great just doesn't do it. You, you exhaust the word great, and you keep going. And so we prefix it with that question, how great, how far can you be? And Lord, you are so magnificent, so huge. The word great captures as much as we can conceive of who you are all the goodness that we could possibly think of. And yet, Lord, there is more to you than that. And so we are grateful that you have called us your own. Lord, we're grateful that you have drawn us to you. And Lord, we pray that you would keep us safe, keep us in your arms, keep us with you always. And uh, Lord, I just am I'm overwhelmed by some of the songs we sang this morning just really uh, overwhelmed me with how merciful, how kind, how gracious you are. And I don't want to ever take that for granted and just think that it's who you have to be. Lord, it is who you are. Thank you. And Father, this morning we want to pray for the services, the Christian services that exist here in the Antelope Valley to, to help people. Lord, I pray for CareNet and their ministry to, um, to mothers who are uh, unsure about their children, uh, their ministry to teach mothers and fathers, how to raise and, and uh, provide for and care for children. And Lord, the, uh, the great outreach that they do, Lord, would you multiply their ministry and fill them with all good things. Lord, I pray that they would reach more and more people and help more folks here in the Antelope Valley be good, solid parents. And Father, I also want to pray for Grace Resources, and uh, we thank you for their long ministry here in the Antelope Valley to the homeless. And we pray that you'd continue to bless them. And uh, Lord, I pray that they would be able to reach um, many homeless folks here in the valley, not only with food and, and shelter, which is vitally important, but also, Lord, with the truth that they are human beings created in God's image, that there is hope for them, that Jesus died for their sins and can save them. And Lord, I pray that the gospel would be integral into their ministry. And so, Lord, would you be with us now as we look at um, the story of Joseph? And uh, Father, would you fill us with joy and anticipation as we study your word? In Christ's name, amen. Um, every story has a climax. It has a high point. It has a thing that it's been going to. And then after that, the story kind of resolves and falls off. Um, that's where we're at with Joseph's story, is we are at the high point of Joseph's story now. This is where it has all been leading up to. So the typical storytelling way things are done is three acts. The first act sets up the situation, introduces the characters. The second act is the conflict. The third act is the resolution. And then after that comes the denouement, which is the wrapping up all the loose ends kind of thing. And so where we're at with Joseph now is we have hit the peak. This is it. This is the, the, the whole thing of Joseph's story comes to its fullness here. And uh, as, as Steve was reading it, I was just overwhelmed with the joy that flows beginning to end in this chapter. And I can't wait to get to it. <laughs> I was just kind of itching to get out of the chair and get up here and start preaching it. Uh, Got to remember where we were last week. Uh, what was happening last week is Joseph had been testing his brothers. He'd been trying to figure out, it's been 20 years since he'd seen them. And so he's asking his brothers these questions without directly revealing that he is their brother. He's setting them up to see how they're going to respond. Because if Joseph is going to lead them well, 
he has to understand where their hearts are at this moment. He can't just assume, oh, they're still the same guys they were 20 years ago. So he sets up this elaborate test. And what we said last week was that he put Benjamin in peril. Because what he told them was he, he put his cup, his divining cup, in Benjamin's sack. And so he set them up to betray or to turn over Joe, uh, Benjamin, to just abandon him. So then they would go back home to dad and say, sorry, dude, you lost another one. But he knew Benjamin was safe because whose hands would he be in? He'd be in Joseph's hands, so he was ultimately safe. What we saw at the end of the last chapter was this beautiful speech by Judah. Judah comes, and something that he has never heard Judah do before, he's concerned for his father. He, he goes to Joseph, and he says, please don't send me back without the lad. If I don't come home with the boy, our father will surely die. Now, when they sold Joseph, did they have any concern for, for, Jude, uh, for um, Jacob at that point? Zero. They didn't care for him at all. As a matter of fact, they lied to him and said, yeah, he got eaten by an animal. Um, now you see Judah is a different man. He's saying, oh, please don't do this to my father. He has a love and a concern for his father. And he also has a concern for Benjamin. He doesn't hate Benjamin the way he hated Joseph. He's actually concerned for him. And so this, this plea is, please don't do this. Please send the boy back. I will take his place. It would be like him telling Joseph, don't hop in that hole. I'll go in there for you. That's the stark contrast between the two. The beginning and the end of the story of Joseph is Judah is a changed man. And it was just such a beautiful plea on, on uh, Judah's part for his brothers. And so that's where we ended it. And it was really hard to stop there because it's mid-story and there's more coming. So we get to do that today. What you see today is Joseph now, he cannot control himself. He is so overwhelmed. He, he recognizes my brothers have been changed. God has been at work in these men all these 20 years, and they are different men. Look at the way Judah has, has responded. So it says he couldn't control himself before all who stood by him. Now, those who stood by him were all Egyptians, and he is the Egyptian governor, and he's, got, he's supposed to be standing in his office in a state of dignity, and he's about to burst into tears. So he yells, make everyone go out for me. That obviously didn't include the brothers because he talks to him next. So he said that in Egyptian. He tells him, everybody leave. And so all his attendants take off, including his translator. Because remember earlier, he had spoken to his brothers through a translator because he wanted them to actually believe he was an Egyptian. So they're all gone. Everybody's out. The brothers are standing there. And they must be thinking, oh my gosh, what comes next? We are in so much trouble. He sent everybody out. The next words out of Joseph's mouth are, I, Joseph, in Hebrew. And they must have been in Hebrew because the translators skedaddled too. So suddenly this man that they've been looking at as this great powerful Egyptian who couldn't speak to them in Hebrew before now turns to them and says, I, Joseph. And that must have rocked their world. They, they couldn't believe what they were hearing. This is Joseph? And he wept. And it says that he wept so loud, the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. it well, I don't think it was necessarily that the volume was so great that it spread out across the land like, a, like the sirens going off or something. You ever hear like a tornado siren go off? It, you can hear that everywhere just as designed. I don't think that that was what Joseph was doing. I think what happened was his attendants were probably standing outside the room in case he called them back in. And they hear him wailing and the word gets out. Joseph is in there crying. What's going on? 
That, that's really surprising. And I say that because when word gets to Pharaoh, it, it's reported to Pharaoh that this has happened. And now he goes, oh, that's what that noise was. Okay, it's his brothers. So I, that, I think that's what's happening is he's, he's crying out and he says, I am Joseph. And then he says, um, he says, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? And his brothers couldn't answer them because they were dismayed at his presence. Uh, the NIV says, terrified at his presence. And the word that's used there could be terrified or dismayed. It's used quite often when people see God and their response. And there it's appropriately translated as terrified because God's presence would be terrifying. It would be scary to see all of his majesty, all of his glory. Um, I think the better translation is what the NIV and most of the other modern translations do, which is dismayed. So what's the difference between terrified and dismayed? Well, terrified is just a fright, just being scared of whatever's standing in front of you. To be dismayed, there's a sense of sorrow in it too. So his brothers are looking at Joseph, and it's not that they're scared that he's going to zap them. It's they're dismayed. These men have been broken because of their sin. They're looking at their brother. They see how successful he is, all that he's been doing, all his mercy, all his kindness, and it just breaks their hearts. How could, how could we have done that? And so Joseph's response then is he says, come near to me. Now, before, remember, the Egyptians ate apart from them, and Joseph ate apart from the Egyptians and them and, and everything. And now he's saying, look, I'm Joseph, and now I want you to draw near to me. The facade is gone. I'm not pretending to be the, the great Egyptian ruler anymore. I'm Joseph. I'm your brother. I want you to come near. And so that he says, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. He reminds them of their sin. So where, where Joseph sets this up, before he gets to the next thing he says, is he reminds them of what they've done. Joseph is not about to look at them and go, yeah, it's no big deal. Yeah, it worked out okay. You know, it's, it's, it's all right. Don't forget about it. Uh, we're still friends. Instead, he calls attention to their sin. You sold me into Egypt. But that's not the end of the story. And like I said, the crying out, his, his yelling travels. And so this good news that he's about to announce travels as well. So the good news, first of all, travels to his brothers. Then it's going to travel to Pharaoh. And then finally, the good news is going to travel to Jacob. And that's, that's the trajectory of the story. So Joseph tells them, I'm your brother who you sold into Egypt. And he says, and now don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Again, reminding them. So the, the response that Joseph has is first of all emotional. He's overwhelmed with, with his love for his family and being reunited and the joy of that. Second of all, he's dealing with the sin. He doesn't let the sin just pass by. He has to address it, and he reminds them of what their sin is. But the way that he deals with it is not by dismissing it, not by downplaying it, but instead he gives them a lesson in theology. And this is amazing to think that Joseph is the one who's going to give them the lesson in theology. Where has this guy been for 20 years? He's been in pagan Egypt. But yet he's watched God walk with him through all of the things that have gone on as he's been in pagan Egypt. And so he has an experiential knowledge, an experiential understanding of who God is and what God's doing. And so listen to his theology lesson. He says, and now don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. You sold me here. For God sent me 
before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years before there will, uh, when there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it's not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father of Pharaoh and Lord of all the house and ruler of all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go and tell my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. How is, how is Joseph interpreting his situation? He's interpreting it theologically. He says God through the whole thing. As a matter of fact, one of the commentators said, there's hardly a sentence that, that J, uh, Joseph says that doesn't mention God. He tells Pharaoh, or he tells Potiphar, um, God will give you the answer. Or um, the uh, cupbearer and those guys, when he's interpreting dreams, God will give you the answer. He tells Pharaoh, it's not in me, I can't answer this, but God will give you a favorable interpretation. And now he's telling his brothers, God has done these things. God is constantly on Joseph's lips. He is constantly telling these guys God has done this. So when he tells them that God has brought, the, the, I think the, the heart of the thing is he says, so it's not you who sent me here, but God. It's not you who sent me here, but God. Didn't he just tell them when you sold me into slavery? When you sold me into Egypt? So how do you reconcile these two things? What you get is their sin in betraying and selling their brother and God's sovereignty. God sent me here. So how do we put these two ideas together without downplaying one or the other? I think, first of all, what, what Joseph is doing by presenting this problem, we'll resolve that problem in a second, but what he's doing by presenting the problem the way he does, human sin and God's sovereignty, is he is actually preaching the gospel to his brothers. Now, when we say preaching the gospel, we think Jesus died for your sins and rose again on the third day because we're on this side of the cross. But they're not only on that side of the cross, they're way on that side of the cross. And so the gospel that they had was not the fullness of the gospel that we had, yet they had the gospel. And why do I say that? Because Galatians 3.8 says that the gospel was preached to Abraham beforehand, saying, in your seed will all the nations be blessed. Does that sound like the gospel? Not our gospel, not the, the fullness that we've seen, but it was the gospel that was preached at the time of Abraham, was in his seed all the nations would be blessed. And so the gospel was present, but it was present in a, in a kernel, in a, just a seed form. And that's what Joseph now tells his brothers. So how is it that you guys are evil and God used it for good is the gospel at this point? Well, I, I think the way to prove that is to look at Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were arrested. They were beaten. Uh, they were told they couldn't preach in Jesus' name anymore. When they return to the church, the church prays, and this is part of their prayer. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now what was it that all Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, and people of Israel had in common to take place with Jesus, to nail him to a cross. And the way the church interpreted that was they said, that was evil. That is the, the epitome of evil. It doesn't get any more evil than to have God incarnate stand before you, you nail him to a tree and kill him. 
That is evil. And yet it says God had predestined this to take place. So the, the way that this fits into the gospel is human evil is not running roughshod over everything. It is not running loose across the face of the earth and doing whatever it pleases. Human evil is being restrained, contained, limited, and directed by God's perfect purpose. So when Joseph looks at his brothers and he says, you sold me into slavery and God led me here, he's saying essentially what the gospel is, is God is still sovereign over human sin. And isn't that the problem that we've been facing since the beginning of Genesis? God created everything and it was very good. And then the serpent shows up in the garden. And then Eve eats the fruit. And then Adam eats the fruit. And then we get to chapter 5. Adam begat so-and-so, and he died. Where is the resolution to this sin? How do we understand it? So we get to this point in the story, and Moses is telling Israel, God is sovereign even over human sin. He is leading and directing even through the evil intentions of hearts. And so he makes it extraordinarily personal for Israel, and he says, your patriarchs, your forefathers, were this evil, and God restrained and contained it. So I think what's going on is he's preaching the gospel to them. They have repented sufficiently that they can hear now the gospel truth that God is sovereign even over their sins, and they need to know that God is sovereign even over their sins. Otherwise, they're going to be undone. They're terrified to stand in the presence of the one man who could testify infallibly against them in a court of law and have them all executed. He's the one person outside the, 11, or the 10 who know exactly what happened on that day when they sold him into slavery. And now not only is there proof that he exists, he's standing before them. They need to deal now with their guilt. Their feelings of guilt, their, the weight of their sin is now upon their hearts. And Joseph tells them the gospel. He preaches to them the fact that God used this. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good is what he'll remind them in chapter 50. But right now he says, you sold me and God led me. So how does that fit together? How do we understand this concept that God hates sin, God will judge sin, God will cast sin into the lake of fire, and yet now God is directing human sin. He's not allowing it to run wherever it wants. It's accomplishing his purposes. It's a difficult question. It's a rich theological question. And so, of course, to answer it, I have to quote Jonathan Edwards, because <laughs> who else is going to be brave enough to tackle it? But because he's Jonathan Edwards, um, instead of quoting, I'm going to paraphrase. I hope that's okay. Um, we got to bring it back down to what we can understand. This is a, a, an analogy that, that uh, Edwards brought up. He says, since men don't commit sin unless God leaves them to themselves, so men don't commit sin unless God leaves them to themselves. If God is with them, he will restrain their sin. If, God, uh, if men don't commit sins unless God leaves them to themselves, and then necessarily sin when he does, it would be strange to argue that, therefore, their sin is not from themselves, but from God. Get the, the distinction? If God moves away from a person and then they choose to sin and he moves closer to the person and he re restrains their sin, what Edward says, it would be a strange argument to say that sin is God's fault. And here's the, the picture that he says. Um, he says it would be strange to, to say that sin is from, uh, not from themselves, but from God. If that were so, it would make God a sinful being. It would be like arguing that because it's always dark when the sun is gone, and never dark when the sun is present, 
Therefore, all darkness is from the sun. Do you get the, the picture? When the sun is not around, there's darkness. Does the sun generate darkness? No, it's just the absence of the sun. When God is not around, human sin goes in directions it wants to. Does God cause human sin? No, he controls and he directs it. So he allows it to exist in some times and he, he reigns it in in other times. And, and that's what Joseph is telling his brothers. He says, you have sinned, you have done this horrible thing. And yet by doing this horrible thing that is contrary to God's will, God's purpose is accomplished because our God is so great. That's why I think it hit me this morning when we said great is our God. Yes, he is. He can even control, when he doesn't want something to happen, it still accomplishes his purposes. I wish that was my case, because when I don't want something to happen, it usually does anyway. So uh, John Piper, who is the big disciple of Jonathan Edwards and a fairly decent explainer of Jonathan Edwards, he, he tells a similar kind of thing. And um, so this is my chopped down version of Piper explaining this same concept. He said, the desires of the believer for righteousness are due to God's opening the eyes of his heart, Ephesians 1.8. Do you want to do righteous? Do you want to be righteous? That's because God has opened your heart, according to Ephesians 1.8. So that you can see its irresistible glory. God opens your heart so you can see his irresistible glory, and that draws you to want to do the good that he wants you to do. Every act of Christian obedience is a gift of God. That's Galatians 2.20, 1 Corinthians 15.10. Every act of obedience is a gracious gift of God. Every time you comply with what God wants from you, it is his gracious gift to you. Every act of love is caused by the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 3.12. May God give you this love. We are his workmanship, his pot of clay, his poem, and all... Our good deeds have been prepared for ages, Ephesians 2.10. This is just another way of saying that all enduring temptation is the result of God working in us to will and to do his good pleasure. So God is leading his people in righteousness is the positive way to say it. He is giving us these things to lead us into righteousness. Then Piper turns it on and says, so let's look at the, the opposite of that then. He says it follows that when a believer gives in to temptation, desiring sin more than God, it's because God has allowed sin or the flesh to gain the ascendancy for the moment. So if God is at work in us to will and to do as his good pleasure, if he fills our hearts with love, if he's leading us in these good works that he's prepared for us beforehand, when we fall into temptation, what Piper is saying is that is God allowing that to happen, God making the space, not causing it, not putting his hand up our back and pushing us into it, but God allowing space and then human desire, human flesh, human sin flourishes because God has allowed that, not because he caused it. Sin comes about in the believer's life only by God's permitting man's natural tendencies to resurrect themselves temporarily. And he does not, out of any, and he does not do it out of any delight in sin but out of a delight in the greater end which will be achieved. We may, always, or we may not always understand his designs, but we need not doubt his wisdom and power and mercy to bring it through to, the end, to glory in the end. So what he's saying is, if God 
backs off, if he, he's giving us the will to do good things, if he, if he restrains for a moment and allows the flesh and sin to rise, what we have to see is God is not just saying, watch what they do when I'm not around. What he's saying is this sin rises up, this sin happens, but in the end, in the long term, it is going to accomplish my purpose without me causing it, without me being guilty of being the author of sin, I allow a space for sin to happen. Sin happens because the world is full of sin, but in the end, it accomplishes my purpose. It still happens the way I want it. This is exactly what Joseph is telling his brothers. You, led, you sold me, God led me. I, I was in jail. I got raised up out of jail because the cupbearer, the pagan cupbearer, forgot about me for two years. And yet, God has made me the father of Pharaoh. God did these things. Even though human sin was involved in it, it's God who actually accomplishes his purpose. And that is the story of Joseph. That's the important high point of Joseph's story, is that God, even through these horrible situations, accomplished his purpose. God had designed that Joseph would save the world. God had designed that Joseph would be the governor over Egypt, that he would save up food so that people wouldn't starve to death. But even beyond that, it was Joseph who was in that role so that the covenant family would not just survive, but they would be brought into Egypt and they would thrive. And that was all God's good, right, intended purpose in the midst of wicked human sin, wicked human unbelief, of a bunch of pagans worshiping false gods. And what the Bible tells us when they worship false gods, they're worshiping demons. And in the midst of all of that, God says, I'm going to be good to my covenant family. I'm going to preserve them. I'm going to lead them in. They're going to come celebrated. That is the power of our God. And that's the message that we need to get out of this as well, is when sin comes, it didn't get past God. It wasn't like he was busy with something else for the moment. And here's the thing, is at this point, it's easy for us to look and go, when that person sins against me, I need to remember that. I need to recall that God didn't let their sin get to me without his control, and, and that's good. Amen, brother, that is true, and praise God for that. But who is he telling this story to? He's looking to his brothers and saying this. He says, when your sin, when what you have done evil, when that happens, even God is in control of that. So I think as believers, as we look at this, what we need to see is not just God's in control of everybody else's sin, but when my sin happens, and it shouldn't, don't sin. Okay? Let's start with that, don't sin. But when it does happen, it didn't get past God in some way but he couldn't control it or he missed it, or he blinked at that moment. God is going to use even your sin, which he would rather you not do, he's even going to use your sin to accomplish his purposes. Your sin, not just the other person's, because Joseph is talking to his brothers about this. So before we get to that point, so here you go. You're, you're, I've, I've sinned again, whatever that sin is. I've done it. I wish I hadn't, but I can comfort myself because I know God is going to use this for his greater purpose. Don't short-circuit this story. <laughs> Why didn't this happen in chapter 43? Because 
Judah didn't make his speech in, Ju in chapter 43. It took to chapter 44 before Judah made his speech. Repentance comes first. God is at work in you, leading you to repentance. He wants you to forget that sin, to grieve over that sin, not to go, well, that's, that's cool. I wonder what God's going to do with that. That's not the attitude. What we see in this whole story is these brothers have really gotten bad. You remember Judah and Tamar? Let's say no more about that. But Judah and Tamar was an ugly point. And now look at Judah. This man is broken. This man is different. This man is concerned. He's, he's laboring for others. He has come to a point of holy repentance before Joseph looks him in the face and says, you sinned. You've repented of that sin, but God's going to use that sin for his glory and for his purpose. So before we press on, let's say, if I sin, God is still sovereign. But before we get to that point where we begin to comfort ourselves with that, remember, repentance comes first. It's God's design, it's God's desire that you repent of that sin before you try to say, oh yeah, but it's all going to work out in the end. It all will work out in the end, but you still need to repent from it. Sin is still an offense to a holy and a loving God. So this is the, the good news that spreads, is Joseph announces it to his brothers. Now the next stage in the spreading, the report got to Pharaoh's house. Joseph's brothers has come, and it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. The good news spreads to the next step. Now, who is this Pharaoh cat? Who is this guy? Um, James Montgomery Boyce wrote a really nice commentary. It's kind of, he did a, a, a radio program where he was doing Bible lessons, and, and I think it's just the transcripts from it. But he summed up this historical part pretty well. And again, I paraphrased because I didn't like the way he wrote it. Um, so who is this Pharaoh guy? Who is it? We don't know. We have no idea who this is. Uh, historical records at this point are really thin. So we can't say for certain this was Pharaoh so-and-so and this was the year this happened. But there are some things that we can say. Um, it's generally assumed that Joseph and his family were received into Egypt during the reign of the Hyksos kings or the shepherd kings. So who were the Hyksos kings? Well, they invaded Egypt around 1700 BC. And they took over Egypt from 1700s to just about a century later. They, they'd run the place. They came from what's now Turkey. And they can, came down and they invaded Egypt and they took over the northern portions of, of, uh, of Egypt up by the Nile, uh, the Nile Delta area. The thing is, they were Semites. They were from the same family as Abraham's father. And so these Semites were now ruling over portion of northern uh, Egypt. And so the idea is perhaps this is why Joseph could ascend to be second in control is these were his people because the, the Egyptians were fairly xenophobic. They didn't like Atsaliers. But if the Hyksos kings were ruling, they might be more amenable to another Semite, another people from their kind of tribe. So that's the thought. Um, there's a little bit more to this. It kind of keeps going. So the Sem the, uh, these um, Hyksos kings ruled in Tanis, which was up in the uh, Nile Delta region, up where the Nile dumps into the Mediterranean Sea. And that might explain why Joseph looked at his brothers and said, you're going to settle in Goshen, which is up in that area. It's because that's where the people who would tolerate them were, were living. And it also may explain what happens next in the story. 
which is later in Exodus 1, we hear a king arose who didn't know Joseph. What happened was the Hyksos were ex uh, expelled from Egypt in 1567. So if that monarchy was overthrown and tossed out, a new king would come in and go, I don't want anything to do with those people, enslave them. So it kind of lines up, it kind of fits that, that uh, if the Hyksos uh, dynasty was ruling when this happened, it gives us kind of a broad time frame. It also explains some of the, the familiarity in the story. So that's the king, theoretically. Um, so what? <laughs> nice history lesson, but you know, so what? Who cares? What does it matter? Well, here's what's going on is Pharaoh is really happy that Joseph's brothers have come. Um, that, that, that pleases him in his household. And so he says, load up your beasts, take food back, get your father, get your household, everything, and bring them back here to the land, land of Egypt, and we'll take care of you. We'll provide for you. We're even going to send wagons to go get your children and your women. And, and I picture uh, Jacob, like Granny uh, Clampett in uh, the Beverly Hillbillies. You know, she's sitting up in the top of the back of that Model T. I picture Jacob sitting in a big chair on this this cart rolling back into Egypt. Why does he do this? I don't think what he's engaged here, I think he's amenable to the gospel as, as we've defined it here. I think he's, he's good with that because it will serve his purposes. If Joseph has blessed us, look how we're doing in this famine. Joseph has been a blessing. Well, heck, what if there's more Josephs? Let's bring that whole clan in here, man. This is really going to increase our bottom line. The, the gospel is expedient right now. So yeah, let's celebrate this. This is great. That is what I think why he's pleased. He's like, there's more of them? Man, yeah, bring them on in. Let's see what happens. They're, he's looking for his political ends. Politicians do that, generally speaking. They, they, be, they be political. Um, don't be surprised when your politicians are political. That's just what they're like. However, when the gospel is no longer expedient, it becomes a problem. Another king rose who didn't know Joseph, and he enslaved them. He was afraid of them. He said, if they get too numerous, they're going to take over. They're going to take my political power. And so now it goes from blessing to oppression. So I think the story here, when we come to, to Pharaoh receiving this message, is an air of caution. There will be times when government is very favorable to us. Oh, yeah, those Christians, they're wonderful people, as long as they keep voting the right way, as long as they keep paying their taxes, as long as, they keep, as, long as we can keep them in line. But when we become no longer expedient, when we're no longer helping their political bottom line, then we become an, a liability. So don't trust the government. There's a reason that Augustine wrote a book called The City of God, because in it he defines two cities, the city of man and the city of God. And they exist side by side and they progress, and sometimes they, they're mutually beneficial and sometimes they're at war. And that's the story we get here, is this pharaoh loves these guys. This is great news. Go get them. We'll send some semi-trucks. We'll get some movers installed there. We'll get the whole apartment emptied out, get the whole clan moved in here. It's going to be great. But another pharaoh comes along, and yep, tide turns in a heartbeat. It didn't take much, did it? So the gospel, as it goes out, will be good news to the believers, may or may not be good news to the government. Depends on how, what the winds of, of uh, the uh, political winds are blowing that direction that day, that afternoon. 
So take care with that. But in this case, this is tremendous news. He's going he's to go get them and bring them in. And so the sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for the journey, and to each one he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. He's still playing favorites. Joseph, Joseph is Benjamin's brother. And, and we can't conceive of a family with three or four moms, what the, the politics or the, the way that the things would work in the family, but this is how it works at this time. And, and so Joseph is still favoring his baby brother. He still loves him. And so his, to his father, he sends 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt. He doesn't just send the food. He sends presents. 10 donkeys worth of presents. A semi-trailer full of presents he sends off. And food and provisions for the journey. The provisions for the journey to get there, to load him up and to bring him back. Enough food for all of that. And then the thing that cracks me up is at the end it says, and he said to them, don't quarrel on the way. He still knows his brothers. And, and this is hope for me because Judah is a different man, isn't he? He is repented. He's concerned for others. And yet he's exactly the same man and needs to be told, don't quarrel. Don't argue. And I think that comes up because at the end of the previous section, after he cries, after the theology lessons, it says that after this, his brothers talked with him. So they sit down at the tables and they just start telling stories. What on earth have you guys been up to? What's been going on in the promised land? What's the latest? And so they start telling stories. And well, Joseph, what happened to you? Oh, man, you're not going to believe. I wound up in this guy's house, Potiphar, and I got thrown in jail. I didn't even do anything wrong. So they're telling the stories back and forth. And that's how he gets this hint. These guys are still my brothers. And they're still brothers. They're probably poking each other and elbowing and you know, blaming each other for spilling something and making bad jokes and that kind of stuff. They're still brothers. So he tells them, as you go, don't quarrel. <laughs> don't argue about this. Remember my theology lesson? Yeah. Reuben, I know you were trying to save me, and that's nice and everything, but don't quarrel about it. It's okay. God has covered this. We're done with that. And now we're going to move on to the next phase. So they go down. They bring all of these things. And then the good news then travels to Jacob, the father, the patriarch. So they went up, or they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb. You know what the word in Hebrew means for heart became numb? It means his heart became numb. It's, there's nothing fancy going on here. What it is, is the good news was so good, it overpowered poor Jacob. He couldn't process it. Not only, remember how worried he was about his youngest? I send Benjamin down there and something bad's going to happen. And, and I hinted, I think he knew what the brothers were up to. So he's not really willing to trust the brothers with the baby again. So he, he says, I, you know, I'm risking it because if I keep him here, he's going to starve to death. So it's at least worth a try. Take Benjamin, go down and get us some food. Not only has Benjamin now returned, Simeon's out of jail. Remember, Simeon was in jail. Now both of his sons returned. And on top of that, Joseph's still alive. It's too much good news for an old man like this. He can't take it. He's got to sit and process this for a minute. It, it, it has numbed his heart. He's like, what? And it, it takes a moment for it to sink in. He didn't believe him. This is too much. This is too good for me. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, 
when he, that which he had said to them. And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father revived. So the mere words, Joseph is alive, he didn't believe them. He needed to see some evidence. And when he sees the semis pulling in with Joseph's moving company painted on the side, that's when he goes, oh, this is real. <laughs> Wait a minute, really? And his spirit revives. The good news reaches Jacob, and it's just too much for him. He's too overjoyed. It, it's so, so great. And in the end, he says, it's enough. God, I can't take any more of your goodness to me. Your faithfulness to me is too much. It's enough. Joseph is alive, and I will go and see him before I die. Lord, this is it. I can't take any more. I'll go see Joseph, and I'll lay my little head down, and I'll die. And that'll be enough. That'll be sufficient for me. What I think is happening with, with Jacob is the goodness of God is so overwhelming to him, so much. He's been holding out hope for 20 years. He's been just, just probably, like, I picture him clutching that blood-stained, long-sleeved or multicolored coat, wishing to see his son in it again, just, just hoping against hope. And now God answers him. And it reminded me of a poem by John Newton. He says, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in the believer's ears. It is too much. It's too good. It's enough. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in the believer's ears. It soothes our sorrows, heals our wounds, and drives away our fears. It makes the wounded spirit whole and calms the troubled breast. Tis manna to the hungry soul and to the weary rest. O oh, Jesus, shepherd, guardian, friend, my prophet, priest, and king, my Lord, my life, my way, my end, accept the praise I bring. How weak the effort of my heart, how cold my warmest thought, but when I see you as you are, I'll praise you as I ought. Till then, I would, love, I would your love proclaim with every fleeting breath, and may the music of your name Refresh my soul in death. That's how Jacob receives the gospel. That's how he hears it. He hears the news that God is sovereign over his son's sins. And he says, that's sweet to me. My God loves me. He cares. He's been faithful. He will be faithful. Joseph's story ends in this tremendous climax, this, this ringing gospel message. And this is why I've been saying Joseph is a picture of Christ in all of this. He, he's kind of like Jesus. He was thought to be dead and raised again to life. He's rejected by his brothers, and then when they reveal, he reveals himself to them, then they turn and worship. And in the end, the gospel rings out even to Pharaoh's house and all the way down the ages to the patriarchs, and they rejoice in it. So Joseph needed the gospel in reality, but the way Moses is painting this picture of him, he is standing in Christ's stead for us. He's, he is the announcement of the good news. Joseph is alive. That's why when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we say Jesus is alive. That's part of our gospel message. So next we'll have Joseph's family come down to Egypt, and then we start heading into the wrapping up of the book of Genesis. Wow. <laughs>
I want it to end. I didn't want this to end. I want to preach on this for another six or seven hours. It was such tremendous news, such good news to us. Well, let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, how sweet your name is in our ears. It is a reminder of God's goodness to us. Lord, to hear Jesus proclaimed is to remember we have sinned, we have sinned deeply, we have sinned intentionally, we have sinned richly, and yet our Father has sent his Son to redeem us. He is ruling over all the world and is sending good things. Lord, as we had intended things for bad, You've brought things about for your good. Father, would you grant us repentance, genuine, heartfelt, Judah-sounding repentance, so that we may hear the truth that you are sovereign over our sin even and be comforted by that. Lord, I pray especially that we as gospel people, as people who have been redeemed by grace, those who have been saved by Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that when we cry, the sound would reach even to the ends of Lancaster. Lord, as, as we weep over the brokenness of sin and the power of God over it, or the majesty, Lord, I pray that our, our, our crying would ring to even the ends of the Antelope Valley. And Lord, I pray that many would rejoice and many would be drawn in because of your goodness. Not because of our sinlessness, but because of your goodness. Lord, accomplish wonderful things through us, broken, fallen, faulty, frightened, weak sinners, so that more glory would go, abound to you. And that's our desire. In Christ's name we ask. Amen.